the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this passage is very encouraging. It's very understand, very easy to understand. Uh, the complication from it comes from knowing what unity actually looks like, and even harder is to go and practice it. Uh, so, so recently I reread uh, Lord of the Rings, and in the first book, right, this line that's been playing in my head all week is uh, Frodo going into Mordor says, I know what I must do, but I'm terribly afraid to do it, right? Walking into danger, walking into these, these difficult situations, and that's kind of what's been on my mind as I've been preparing for this is that sometimes we know what must be done, but the fear of going and doing it is much harder, right? So as we, we kind of dissect this, we'll, we'll jump into that more, right? So the first four verses here serves as a transition of Paul's thoughts from, from chapter one leading into chapter two. And it starts off with this word, so, right? And whenever we see a word, so, therefore, because, fill in the blank, we need to look back to see what came before it. So if we look back at chapter 1, Paul gives the Philippians this charge starting in verse 27. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a clear sign of your salvation. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul is charging the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel by being unified together, right? We see this huge uh, picture of unity that he's starting to give them here. And it's not just, you know, united for whatever. It's united in their faith for the gospel. It's for this specific purpose, right? And what we see this morning is a more detailed picture of what this looks like in the church, what it looks like for each of us. How do we live this out? Not just what it looks like to the outside world that might be looking in, just um, but what it actually looks like inside. Right? How do we build each other up? How do we actually live with one mind? If you come back next week, you'll even see how this gets perfected eventually in the work of Jesus. Um, we'll let Stephen do that. I won't steal his thunder yet, right? But what we see is that a unified church is made up of people standing firm in the gospel, right? And this group no longer lives for themselves, but instead find joy in living for Jesus and in living for someone else. So if we read this, we we should really read it as uh, stand firm in the gospel, be unified, right, and then the rest of the passage. So, and he starts with these rhetorical almost phrases, right, that that gives us this motivation to Christ. And this point almost kind of feels not very Pauline, right, because he says if feels very uncertain. He gives these beautiful motivations, and we don't typically see Paul starting something like this by saying if. He doesn't speak about positive characteristics of Christ with if. He's a very certain person, right? And he's using this if not in a hypothetical sense here. Instead, we realize that there's, there's two ways, two things that he's kind of after. One, he's after, um, he's kind of being rhetorical, right? We use this word like this all the time, kind of in place of the word since, right? Um, in my house, it comes up like, uh, Tori, if you loved me, we'd go to Chick-fil-A for dinner. Or if you loved me, you would clean the dishes, right? This is something that we use quite often. The second thing he's doing is he's making the Philippians reflect on whether or not they believe these things are true. So when he's saying all these, he's pulling their minds first to the cross. He's encouraging them through this. And before he even starts to instruct them, he wants to kind of prime their actions with these things of Christ. He creates a greater sense of encouragement through these things. 
So briefly, while we walk through each of these statements, think about how you would answer them. Would you be certain with each statement, or do you say if, do you say but, or fill in the blank? Do you question that these things, or do you answer it in the affirmative? So, um, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, right? Do we find peace in the love of Christ? Uh, this last week, I've been reading through the book of John, and as I've kind of been reading it, one of the things that stuck out to me is just this love and tenderness that Jesus had for some of the people around him, right? And what we see, like, stories of the woman of the well, right, who was living in sin, who was walking in sin, uh, Jesus spoke plainly and tenderly about her. He offered her eternal water, right? There was no harsh rebuke. He, he did say, do not sin, but there wasn't this harshness to it, right? A story about Lazarus, when Jesus was approaching the tomb of this dead man, this man that he loved, right? It says that he wept, right? It's a two-word verse, but that is so powerful to us because this talks about a God that would care enough about us that he would cry over our death, that he would be destroyed by this, right? This is the God that we worship, not one that is uh, too high above us to care about what we do, but one that is hurt by our deaths, by our shortcomings, by, by these uncomforts for us, right? And again, to echo some of these comforts that we have from Jesus, his last words in Matthew 28, he says, behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age, right? There's not many more comforting passages than, than I will be with you always as you do these things. Right? Next point, if there is participation in the Spirit, right? And this participation in the Spirit is referring to, to two main things. The first being participation with God through His Spirit. Um, we read it in, this, in our passage last week, right? I, I may hear of you standing firm in one Spirit with one mind, We're blessed to be unified by the same Spirit, and that's because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Romans 8.26 says this, um, it'll be on the screen, you don't have to flip there. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, and catch this part, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, right? Again, so we see the Spirit is unifying us with God and with one another. Notice what the Spirit is helping us in here. He's helping us in our weakness. Uh, When we're unable to even communicate with God, that's when he steps in and he does it for us. He does it with us. And the reason that this is so effective is pretty plain. It's because it is God's Spirit. It is of his mind. Um, In the same way, it it helps us understand him. Uh, One of the things that kind of blew my mind when I first got married is that people don't think the same I don't know why that was something that escaped me for 24 years, but nobody thinks the same way that I do, right? So, um, and it, it just astounded me time and time again how um, I would do something that's obvious, and it wasn't obvious because I wouldn't communicate it, right? That's not something that we have here with God's Spirit because He communicates um, for us. He is of the same mind. They do the same thing because they, they know each other well. Our next if statement, if there is any affection and sympathy in Christ. To me, this is the most rhetorical of all the statements. The source of all love that we see is the character of God. We know love because he first loved us. 
While we were still enemies of God, living in our sin, being in complete opposition, God sent his own son to die for us. Right? John 1, 4, 10 puts it this way. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation right, or the stand-in, the substitute, the sacrifice for our sins. Before we had the capacity to love, when we were desperately wicked, Jesus came to die for us. And that, that's the only truth that we're here to proclaim as the church, right? that Jesus died for our sins, he did the thing that we couldn't do, and he rose again so that those who believe in him and confess that Jesus is Lord might be saved, might be with God eternally, might be abiding with him so that we can know his eternal perfect love. So I'm going to return back to this word if Paul gives us. Um, so if we answer the first part of Paul's statement with an affirmative, then we should also answer the second part, right? And we should read it more like this. Because there is encouragement in Christ, because we have comfort and love, because there's participation in the Spirit, we live in the same mind in full accord. If we believe the first part, then we have to believe the second. We have to answer it with this, of course we do this, right? These two statements must be connected. They cannot go uh, without one another, right? Since we have love and encouragement in Christ, we are then able to give love and encouragement to one another. And that's how we live in unity, right? So the next part of this, this phrase as we kind of break it apart is Paul says these words, complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's really interesting to me that the only command that we actually see in this passage is that we are to complete Paul's joy. In his imprisonment, he's facing death, execution, torture, fill in the blank. He was already pretty joyful, right? He considered it a blessing to be going through these things. We see later in chapter 4 how he kind of breaks apart how this is possible. But it's interesting to see that any joy he might be lacking is fulfilled by this unified Philippian church, right? The answer to the rest of the joy that he might need is from seeing this church do this, right? And at first glance, this phrase feels kind of manipulative, right? Like almost as if he's trying to guilt them from his prison cell to do these things, right? I'm an imprisoned man. Make me really happy if you would do this, guys. Um, that's not really what he's getting at here. Paul had the authority to just command them to do these things. He could have just said, get along, move on, we're all done here. But he doesn't do that. What he's looking for is to kind of prime their minds to understand what it is that he's talking about, to understand this joy that he's giving them. He models for them this kind of expectation of how to have real, lasting joy. Right? This is the kind of joy that goes against what the world teaches us to find joy in. Um, it isn't the kind that's just here today, gone tomorrow, um, gone with the circumstances. Right? It is joy that is based on the advancement of the gospel. That's what Paul's getting at here. Not just that they would get along and be fine, but that they would do this together, that they would advance the gospel, that the church would be built up. Right? And this is joy that does not tarnish or fade because it is based on God's eternal kingdom. It is based on the success that God has and what he does for us and through us. So what does unity actually look like? What does this actually turn into in our lives? Right? So he continues in verse 2. He says, um, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in a full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other's more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Paul doesn't leave it up for a lot of room for misinterpretation here, right? Notice some of these absolute phrases that he uses. Be of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Let each of you look not to his own interest. Again, easy to say, easy to understand, very hard to do. The profound impact that this would have on the world is phenomenal, right? We were talking about that this week. Just the kind of love that if people showed for one another like they were supposed to, like we all kind of recognized we should, if we all did this, it would change everything about our lives, right? There'd be um, no more people living on the streets. There'd be no more death, no more pain. This is one of those moments when I'm kind of reading through Paul's letters that I find myself arguing with him in a way. Like, there's no way that this can be true, Paul. There's no way that you can do this, right? Or, or I'll try to rationalize my actions, like, you don't understand I did this because so-and-so did this first, right? What I did was a reaction to what they did. But it's in one of those moments where we have to stop and realize that what the Bible is saying is right and that what we do and what we think is wrong and that we kind of have to um, take our disagreements that we have, realize that we are wrong in this, and try to bring back our thought process and realign ourselves to the Bible's correct teaching, right? So the first sign of unity that we get is that we are to be of one mind. It's one mind that we have means the same ambition, the same goal, the same drive, the same, you know, fill in the blank. Now this doesn't mean that we literally all share the same mind. It doesn't mean that we all think the same things. We don't have uh, a big hive mind with one shared intelligence with God working the puppet strings in the background. Um, It isn't like that. What it means is that when we have disagreements, instead of looking at our differences, instead of looking at our wrongs or our hurts, uh, we look at what we have in common first. We look back to Christ. We look to uh, what our goal is, right? Where do we find our joy? Again, it's in the building up of God's church. We look back to our mission to glorify God and make disciples. And the beautiful part of it is, is that we all do this in different ways, right? So uh, some of us may pull a trailer or get up here and preach or set up chairs, right? Or go back to our workplaces and spread the gospel there. But we do all of these things together in different ways. And I think that, that really shows uh, kind of the um, mobility and the adaptability of God's church is that he just makes it in a way that we can do all of this together but differently. It serves to our strengths, right? The next sign of unity that we have is humility. And this is what Paul points to as the cure for kind of our disunity. It leads us to regarding others as more significant than ourselves. And the way that he kind of describes it here is almost backwards. He does it by describing what it not is, right? He says, do nothing from conceit. And the word that he uses here means vain glory. It means empty glory, right? Kind of backwards, right? There's nothing glorious about, about ourselves, All of the glory is in God and belongs to God. And that's what he's pointing at here is that um, are we looking to find glory in ourselves by competing with one another, by arguing, by looking for approval? Or do we find glory in God? Do we give glory to God, right? Is it easy to rejoice when other people succeed? How often do we think about ourselves, right? Some of these things that kind of point us to the way that we think, right? The next thing that we see about unity is that it is both for our good and for God's glory. So turn with me to Romans 15. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Um, I didn't say this from the top, but we have black Bibles uh, at the end of each row. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. It's our gift to you. 
Uh, we'll also have this on the screen. So Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. It says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the spirits, scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Again, we see that we are encouraged to be unified, not through our own effort, but because of the comfort of Jesus. Every blessing that we have been given uh, is a good thing that we should then turn and give back to God. And he he continues and says this in verse 6. He says, uh, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So last week, Stephen had a question from the New City Catechism. Uh, This week, I've got one from the Westminster Catechism. If you don't know what that is, that is just a way to ask questions and answers to help train each other uh, into what we should think about the Bible. So uh, question one says, what is the chief end of man? And it, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So everything that we do should point back to God's glory and leads to his glory, right? I don't think anybody here would argue against this point of dedicating ourselves to this. But what is it about unity that leads to honor and reverence and glory being bestowed on God, right? Think about it this way. It takes something pretty significant to unify a group of people that all think differently, right? A lot of times we use the, the term like herding cats, right? Same thing that we're thinking of here. It takes something pretty significant to do that. Sometimes even in our households, we can disagree on um, how to raise kids, how to spend money, how to spend our time. But when something big, something important happens, like a tree falling on the roof, right? Everybody agrees the first step of action needs to be, let's re- get this tree off the roof and repair it, right? Things like that is what what helps us um, come together and agree. Think about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? Great tragedy, horrible time. But at the same time, the unity that it provided to the U.S. was pretty incredible, right? It took a nation that was divided about going into war, not sure what to do, and kind of turned it around to one that mobilized everything they had for this war effort, right? Pretty incredible, In a similar way that this is the effect that people see when they see a unified church. They see this, this, instead of this great tragedy, right, they see the character of God. They see the gloriousness of God, right? When we read about the early church in Acts, they were giving away everything they had to be with one another, to give to the poor, right? In this kind of reaction that the outside world has is, wow, something's got to be going on here. There's got to be something big here. God must be real if it makes all these people act like this. It makes them think like this. It makes them all be together, right? But on the flip side of this, when people see a disunified church that is squabbling and disagreeing and arguing, um, it makes them wonder if God really is that good if they can't even agree, right? Uh, The next point, unity leads to our sanctification, right? So if Unity is for God's glory and it is for our good. It can be a difficult truth uh, to understand sometimes, to swallow, but sometimes God puts trials or difficult things in our path on purpose to give us a chance to better look like Jesus. This has been a helpful practice. Uh, I read it in a book. Um, I 
quote it, but I couldn't find it. So this has been a helpful practice for me recently. It hasn't been a very fun one, but it's been helpful. Um, whenever I'm going about my day and I'm disappointed or frustrated by something someone does, I sit and I think to myself, oh, this is a chance for me to become more sanctified, for me to look more like Jesus, right? So someone pulls out in front of me. Instead of getting angry and um, shouting at them, I think, okay, this is a chance for me to turn and to become more like Jesus. This is a chance for me to grow more in my faith, right? Not a fun practice, but it is one that is helpful in thinking about unity. What does all of this actually mean? How do we do it? Why is it important? We kind of talked about that, but what do you do to apply this passage? I think some of the difficulty in doing this comes from how vague it is. Um, he doesn't say how we're to apply it or with who, right? When we get to chapter 4 later, we see that he's kind of talking at, at two people that are disagreeing with one another. But the way that he words this passage makes it look and sound as if we're to do this all the time with everybody. And that's exactly what, it's, what he's saying. What makes it difficult is not knowing how to do that or knowing, um, again, knowing exactly what we have to do but being afraid to do it. Some of the things that help us to do this is when we start like Paul does, when we follow his example, when we start by saying, because there is encouragement in Christ, because of these good things he has given us, then we are able to go and do these things. We have to model kind of like Paul does. We have to look at the the obvious and the abundant joys that we have in Jesus. We also see the importance of coming together and doing this, even when it is difficult. So, uh, last flip, we'll turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. Um, there's a good chunk here, so I'll kind of work through it pretty quickly, but I think it's important for us to see this. So 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Right? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For on one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. With our more presentable parts, we do not require... But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members must have the same care for one another. And this is the part that I think we need to see most. If one member suffer, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This metaphor that he paints here, right, that we are all of one body, of one physical representation, um, shows again the importance of being together, right? Because uh, say, for instance, if, if I were to chop off my hand, right? The hand is not going to survive without the rest of the body. In the same way, my body is going to suffer because it doesn't have this hand, right? 
I'm a righty, so that would definitely be very difficult. I don't know why I chose to cut off that one. But anyway, <clears throat> the importance that it shows here is that we have to do this all together. And it isn't just for um, the good of the church, right? And uh, Stephen said this from the front. We don't do these things so that we can build a large audience, so that we can have a larger church, right? We do these things to glorify God, to bring honor to Christ, to preach his word. And so when we say things like this, we aren't trying to say, um, come back next week because we're supposed to, because you can't live without us. What we're trying to say is that as Christians, we cannot exist without the rest of the body, right? And I think this kind of comes down in, in a few simple ways. One, uh, to the group that has not yet become unified with the body, right? If you're new here, looking out, I see some new faces. If you're new here, um, we understand that we're glad you're here. We, we welcome you and we're happy that you're here, but we want you to have more. We want you to step deeper into this, this life with Christ. And part of doing that is doing it together with the body, right? The second group that I think this goes to, and this, this list kind of gets more difficult as we go. So uh, the second group that needs to hear this is the group that needs to reconcile with one another. Right? So if we continue studying in Philippians, which we will, we'll see eventually that Paul is talking specifically to, to a group of people that are in disagreements, that are in arguing. So this context that he gives us here is that um, we need to reconcile with one another. Right? The, the unity that Paul is talking about isn't necessarily from body to body. Right? So it isn't necessarily with this Baptist church is all unified and they're all together, but they can't do anything with this Baptist church that's all unified and all together. What he's talking about here is being unified with a people group. It's talking about not building up a church, but building relationships with one another. He's talking about um, how we can be reconciled with one another, how we love one another. Right? The third group that I think needs to hear this is the group that has become disappointed or hurt by the church, right? We used to say this quite often. I don't know if it's a good thing that we've stopped saying it as often. Maybe it is. Um, but the church is going to disappoint you at some point, right? We're going to disappoint you at some point. We're going to hurt you at some point. That's what all sinners do. That's what all people do. But the importance of the gospel here is that we understand that it isn't just about what is all for us. It isn't all about our good. Sometimes the church is meant, well, not sometimes, all the times the church is meant for our holiness. It's meant for building up the Christian. It is meant for building us up to look more like Christ. And so when we've been hurt or disappointed, it's very difficult to walk back into these places. And I get that. I think your pain is very real in that, and I'm not trying to minimize it. But it's important for us to know that we have to work through that, um, one, together, and two, because it is for our good, it is the only thing that we can do for this. And again, all this to say that it is very difficult. It isn't something that happens overnight or just from Sunday to Sunday, but it is something that we have to walk in consistently, continually, with the help of Jesus. Right? And that's, that's how Paul starts, remember? Because there's comfort from love from Christ. This is then how we should live. So, Every week we end the gathering in the same way, by going to the table, by going to communion. So as we, we do that this morning, um, I kind of want to prime us in two ways. One, uh, to take our time to work through it slowly, right? We don't want to just dip the bread, eat it, and move on. But we want to reflect on uh, what it is that Christ has done for us and what he calls us to do. 
Um, and the second thing I kind of want to prime us to is how can we reconcile better with one another? How can we be um, more unified together? Um, one of the things that I kind of had to struggle with this week is the fun part of preaching is you have to ask yourself, where are you lacking in this area? And for me, it's, it's a lot of ignoring. It's a lot of moving past, like, let me just do what needs to be done and move on. Um, and so I want to, want to kind of prime to what are the areas that we can be more reconciled and be more unified with one another. So I'll pray for us. Communion will be open if you want somebody to talk to. Some of our elders and leaders will be off to the side, kind of over there. So, Father, I thank you for, for the word that you have given us. I thank you for your church, for this body, for this group of people that you've given to help one another, to build each other up. This is a certain kind of grace and joy and, and tool that you've given us, and I pray that you will just help us not take it for granted, but that we, we listen to your word, that we um, reconcile these relationships where we need to, that we work through this, this difficulty where we need to. I pray that you will help us do all of these things. I thank you for your son. I thank you that he would come and die for us, that he would come to make all of these things possible, that he would come... Uh, to give us peace with you, to give us peace with one another, and that he would die and be raised again to, to help us intercede, to help us continue doing these things. Father, I pray that as we go out this week that we will remember your words, that we will recall them often, and that we will think much about them and all the things that you have done for us. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.